Okay, the reading this morning is taken from Luke 18, verses 9 to 14. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men and just adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this man went down to this house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're, uh, we're working our way through some of the parables of Jesus and uh, today we get to the parable that Judy just read for us. Um, the parables uh, are these stories that Jesus uses to, to teach people uh, what the kingdom of God is like, this, this kind of new order of things that Jesus is bringing into the world. Um, and, and maybe at first glance when we read this parable, you hear Judy reading it just now, we're kinda, it's easy to think that this is a parable about prayer. Um, it, it, does, it does involve prayer. Last week, we, 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 we read the first eight verses of Luke chapter 18, um, and we saw how Jesus told them what prayer was about and how we as Christians can just keep persistently coming to God. And, and actually, as we wait for Jesus to return, that we are to live this life of prayer, uh, just continually come to him, ask him for what we need, and, 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 and praying for him to bring his justice, knowing that he will deliver his people. Um, and today, our, prayer, our parable does involve prayer. In fact, most of the parable is the contents of these two guys' prayer. Um, but I, I don't think that Jesus is primarily trying to teach us something about prayer in this story. Um, like I said, most of Jesus' parables are, are teaching us something about the kingdom. And I think the question that Jesus is addressing with this parable is, who gets to be in the kingdom? Who is in the kingdom? Uh, depending on your church background, you might have heard it. We might be familiar with the language of, of who, who, who gets to be saved or who gets saved or, or, or who is really a Christian. Um, Luke, who is recording Jesus telling this story, and he says that Jesus used this word justification, that, 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 that this parable is about who is justified. So in verse 9, we see that, that, we see that the, he's t- talking to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's the same word in the original language is, is justified. And then again in 14, he says, it's this man who went down to his house justified. So before I go any further, uh, I want to I take a second to just explain what being justified or justification means, right? Because sometimes we hear these words, and they're biblical words. This is a word in the Bible that's used over and over again. And so we, we want to use that word, justified, but we want to make sure that we know what it means because we don't necessarily use it that often in our day-to-day lives. So what does... What does justification or, or being justified means? Well, the easiest way I can think of putting it is this. To be justified simply means being made right with God. You're right with God. Um, the Bible teaches us that, that everyone has sinned, that, that we all have this sinful nature, and because of that, we've, we've kind of we've fallen away from God's perfect standards for humanity. Not, not perfect in the sense of uh, good behavior, that we're all, you know, to be good living, but that God had a design for us, for, for our good and for his glory, that we've all fallen away from that. We've all, uh, we, we've all sinned against his holiness. And that means that instead of living forever in his presence, 
that we're, we're doomed to eternal separation from God. And, and instead of enjoying his, his goodness and His favor towards us, we actually uh, will suffer His wrath turned towards, uh, turn towards our sin. So if you think about it a bit like this, um, the sun is back, thankfully. We have our second summer. Um, but the sun is a bit like God's holiness. So the sun is beautiful. It brings light and, and warmth, and, and it makes life possible. But if we got too close to the sun, we would just be consumed by it, wouldn't we? It would just burn us up. Um, and, and that's what it's a bit like with God's holiness. You see, our sin has made us imperfect, and being around the purity of God's holiness with our sin would just destroy us. And so we need to be made righteous. We need to be purified. We need to be justified, to use Jesus' language. And being made right with God, is uh, being justified, is, is part of what happens when we believe in Jesus and become a Christian. So Jesus, who is God, he took all of our impurity and all of our th- sin, all the things that would, would keep us being close to God, he took that on himself. And in exchange, he gave us the very purity of God. He gave us his own sinlessness, his own righteousness. That's what happens when, when, when we trust in Jesus. God declares us justified. He says, he said, it's almost like a, a judge saying, you're not guilty, you're free. Uh, Romans 3, verses 22 and 23 say, the righteousness from God comes, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified and are made right with God freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. In other words, when we trust in Jesus, he takes the eternal consequences for our sin. And when God looks at us now as Christians, this is the amazing part, I think, blows my mind. He doesn't see my sinfulness. He doesn't see my brokenness. He doesn't see all the things that, that keep me separate from him. He sees the purity and righteousness of Jesus. Incredible. We wear the purity and righteousness of Jesus. And because of that, we can be in God's presence forever without fear of being consumed by his holiness and by his wrath. So that's justification. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about being made right with God, being able to come into the kingdom, being able to be in God's presence. And verse 9 tells us that he's talking to, to people who, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He's talking to people who, who were confident in their own self-worth, who were confident in their own righteousness. And literally what it says is they looked down on others. They looked down with everybody else. And what Jesus is doing, he's like, I want to challenge your beliefs about who's really right with God and who's not. And here's what we learned from this parable. The one thing I want you to take away this morning. Only those who humbly trust God are justified. Only those who humbly trust God are justified. Now, I don't know about you, but um, sometimes we, if you've been around church for a while or, or you get so used to these stories, you kind of know, you're almost like, well, I know the point of that, so that one's maybe not for me, so I can just maybe set this one out. Or maybe if we, ha- we don't know these stories, it's new to us, they lose a lot of relevance because uh, they're so far removed in time and, and context. Like, I don't know any Pharisees. I don't know what it's like to go up to the temple to pray. Uh, I don't know any tax collectors who are cheating people out of money. In fact, the tax collector gave me a rebate last week, so that was nice. I actually think tax collectors are quite nice this week. Um, 
So we need to make sure that the impact that Jesus intended this story to have doesn't just wash over us, that we don't lose that. Because really, like most of Jesus' parables, this has a surprise and outcome that's supposed to shock us, supposed to shock his hearers. Um, it would have been absolutely ludicrous. It would have been, it would have been scandal. It would have even been offensive that Jesus says that this filthy tax collector is the one that God justifies and the Pharisee wasn't. And we miss that. Um, so let me put this parable another way and hopefully in a way that can connect with us a wee bit more. Imagine this. It's Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. The church gathering is just about to get started. Uh, people are taking their seats. There's a few people standing at the back having coffee, hugging each other. Remember when we could do that? It was nice. Um, but this particular Sunday, two guys come into the church building. They come into the gathering. And the first guy is a guy called John. And John, he comes in and he walks straight to the front and he sits in the front row um, and he sits down and he's got his Bible under his arm. It's one of those big ones, you know, with the, in the leather case with a zip. You know the ones that are extra holy, them ones. And um, no offense if you have a zip Bible. And he sees his parents sitting across the room and his parents smile at him and they, they just know, we've done a really good job raising John. He's a good guy. And John sits there and he, he just bows his head and he's getting ready to enjoy this gallon and he feels pretty good about himself. He's been coming to church for as long as he can remember. His parents brought him to Sunday school and church from the very first Sunday he was born. He's never missed a gathering. He's part of a missional community, and he always takes part in the discussion. He knows all the right answers to all the questions. He's never drank. He's never smoked. He's never taken drugs in his life, and he's never slept with his girlfriend. In fact, on Saturday nights, instead of going to the club or down the pub with his girlfriend, they go to a coffee shop with some friends and have a Bible study. And everybody knows that John, he's a good guy. He's a good lad. They all know the charity work that he's involved in. The last two summers, he's went to South America for the entire summer at his own expense to, to build schools for underprivileged kids. And as the worship leader begins to sing the first song, he doesn't even have to look up at the screen to see the words. He just keeps his eyes closed, and he just thinks to himself that he's so thankful that he's the way he is. I'm so thankful I'm a good Christian guy. But then he glances up, and out of the corner of his eye, he notices somebody coming into the back of the building and sitting down in the front row, and it's Pete. And John thinks, what on earth is Pete doing here? What's he doing here? He does not belong in a church gathering. I mean, that guy is not a good guy. And the funny thing is, Pete is sneaking into the back row, and he's thinking exactly the same thing about himself. Pete doesn't really know why he's there. He hasn't slept. He's got booze on his breath. He's hung over from the night before. His knuckles are scabbed over from the scrap he was in the other day. And this is a pretty normal Sunday morning for Pete to feel this way after a night's partying and, and, and doing drugs. Pete doesn't have a job and he doesn't want one. He's on benefits. He's lied on every single one of his benefits forms to get as much money from the system as possible. And his girlfriend, who he's only known for a couple of months, by the way, uh, she's pregnant, but the night before, she came home and found him in bed uh, with another girl, and so she, he, she kicked him out. And so he spent the whole night wandering around the streets with his bottle of vodka. And for whatever reason... This morning, he wanders into a church gathering. Maybe it was raining. Maybe he, he, he got to the end of himself. Anyway, he comes into the church gathering. And he knows straight away that he doesn't belong there. He doesn't look like these people. He doesn't dress like them. And he, he certainly doesn't speak like them. And so he almost kind of sneaks in. And, and he sits down at the very back of the room. And he, and he just sits in a chair and just puts his head in his hands. And he's just overcome with the thoughts that he screwed up every single part of his life. 
every good thing he's ever had going for him. He's wasted every opportunity. He's cheated everyone he's ever known. He knows he's a lost cause. And as the worship leader starts to sing, he starts to cry. And just at the end of his teller, he just says into his hands over and over again, God help me. God help me. God help me. And the question is, which one of these two guys is justified? Which one of these two guys is really saved? Or which one of these two guys is really made right with Jesus? And the answer is Pete. And maybe that surprises us. And it should surprise us. Because Pete has realized that he has nothing to offer except his own brokenness and his guilt. And in that realization, he just cries out to God for help because there's nothing else to do. Now, none of us know any Pharisees. But I reckon we all know a few Johns, right? Maybe we, maybe we even are a John ourselves. And it's hard for us to see the Pharisees in the way that the people in Jesus' time would have seen them because we kind of see them almost like, uh, you know, like a pantomime villain? So when he comes on stage, everyone, boo, you know. That's kind of what we think of Pharisees. We know that we're meant to think, oh, here come the Pharisees. They're getting told off again. But, but, but in Jesus' day, that's not how they were viewed at all. The Pharisees were John in our story. Everybody loved them. They did so much good for the community. They, they, they always gave money to the poor. They were respectable. They were good living. The Pharisees were the, that's the kind of guy that you want your daughter to grow up and marry. That's who the Pharisees are. They all knew the Jewish law and they all kept it. And in fact, they, 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 they helped other people understand the law and how they could keep it too. They were holy, they were religious, they were good living. And, and as Jesus was telling the story, all the people listening would know, oh yeah, that's the guy. I want to be like that guy. That's the guy who's justified. Of course he's right with God. He's a Pharisee. And the tax collectors, on the other hand, they, I mean, they were basically the lowest of the low. So at this time, Jesus' time, Israel was occupied by uh, the Roman Empire. And the tax collectors were Jewish people who collected tax money from poor Israelites and gave it to the Romans. So everybody saw them as traitors, right? They, 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 they betraying their own people to serve uh, this, uh, this occupying power. But not only that, they were cheats. They could make a pretty decent living by, by cheating the system. So they were a bit like the Sheriff of Nottingham in, in Robin Hood. You know what I'm talking about. So taking extra money from the poor to, to cream off the top to give to himself. People hated them. They were outcasts. In fact, you'll often see this in the Gospels that... When people are trying to accuse Jesus of being a bad guy, what do they say? They say, oh, he, he spends time with sinners and tax collectors. It's not like, oh, he's spending time with sinners and murderers and rapists. No, it's like tax collectors. They were the lowest of the low. So when Jesus gets to the end of this story, I'm skipping to the end, spoiler alert. When Jesus gets to the end of this story and says that it's actually the tax collector that's made right with God, people would have been horrified. This is impossible. Nevertheless, Jesus says, only those who humbly trust God are justified. This is what we're learning about the kingdom of God. That the way into the kingdom of God is not by being good living or being religious or being a really good Christian. It's by humbly just relying on the mercy of God. And so there's four lessons I want to, to pull out of this. Four lessons I want us to see this morning. Four lessons about humbly trusting God. Firstly, humble trust 
does not condemn or compare. Uh, condemning and comparing was the, the attitude that this Pharisee has. He, he, he looks around, he compares himself to others, and then he, he goes further, he looks down in them. Uh, listen, to, listen to the start of his prayer from verse 11. He says, uh, Jesus says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I mean, that's not much of a prayer, is it? But yet, maybe it sounds like our prayers a lot of the time. He's talking to God, and he's, uh, but he's just telling God how good he is compared to other people. And what we need to realize is that this, is, this would have been pretty normal for Pharisees to pray this way. In fact, the people listening would be like, oh yeah, that's a really good prayer. I'm going to pray like that. Everyone would agree with them. And even as Jesus was saying this, they would think, well, this is a really good thing to pray. This guy's doing okay. He compares himself to everybody, and in his eyes, he finds that everyone is worse than he is. He's better than everyone. He looks down on them. He sees them with contempt. Lord, they're all sinners, but not me. Like, I've never cheated anyone out of money. I've, I've always done the right thing. Having a God, I've always done the right thing. I've never cheated on my wife. I, I never even look at another woman. I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I mean, come on, that guy. Um, and I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, uh, I, when you go from one kid to two kids, some, you notice things, right? So uh, one of the things I'm noticing now is that when you have two kids that when one gets in trouble, the other one thinks this is a really good opportunity to show you how good they are. So, uh, um, poor Abby, she doesn't know what's going on. But So yesterday morning, I sent Finley upstairs to get dressed. Um, and a few minutes later, I went up. And, and there he was, like, in his pants. And Abigail stood with all the toys tipped out onto the floor. And so I started to correct her. And Finley thought that would be a really good idea to tell me how good he was. So he's like... He's like, Daddy, I didn't, I didn't tip the toys out. Look, I'm getting dressed. I'm doing what you told me. Like, as if that would somehow make it better. But, but that's what this Pharisee's like. He's like, well, look what all they did, but I didn't do those things. You, you know, this is like somehow he thinks that, that, that God will find this acceptable if he just reminds God, I'm not like all these other people. This guy thinks that somehow he can be obedient to God. Uh, he can pray. He can give to the poor. That's what the tithing is about in here. But still not love people. And it's not true. In fact, we know that, that Jesus summarizes the whole of the Jewish law. He just says it's this. The sum of it is this. Love God with your entire being and love your neighbor as yourself. The whole point of the law, the whole point of the Old Testament is to show us that we are to love God with our entire being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And like John in our story, sitting in the front row of the church gathering, thinking that he's, he's so glad that he's got it all sorted. The Pharisees totally missed the point. The tax collector, on the other hand, notice how he sees himself compared to other people. It says in verse 13 that he's standing far off. What that means is that he would be, when he comes to the temple, it would actually be sometimes dangerous for tax collectors to come to the temple because people hate them so much. And he stands afar off. He's in the outer court. He's in the place that's reserved for the ritually unclean people. He, start, he, can't, he knows he's unworthy to approach God. He, 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 knows, that he's not, he knows that he's not even worthy to, to worship with other people. I'm not good enough to be with those other people who really love God. I'm just going to stand far off. And one of the biggest contrasts between these two guys' prayers is that the tax collector calls himself a sinner, but the Pharisee calls everyone else except himself a sinner. 
You see, my point is that humbly trusting God doesn't condemn other people. We can't be made right with God if we compare and condemn, if we look at other people and think that we're better than them, if we think that because of our actions we have more right to be a Christian than them. I, I, I deserve to be in the kingdom, but, but maybe not that person. And I would challenge us this morning saying that, that we all do this. I'd be surprised if you've never done this. How often do you find yourself saying, Lord, I've messed up, but, but at least I'm not that bad. Or, or, or when you're chatting to your neighbor who's, you know, uh, she, you know she's, she gave her kid up for adoption years ago and, and she just lives a party lifestyle and, and no regard for her kid. And, and, and you come in after chatting to her and you just say, thank goodness that's not me. Comparing ourselves to others is almost always sinful. And the truth is we all do it and it's so subtle. Think about your own life. It just becomes a subtle part of our daily train of thought that we don't even notice when we're doing it. What I want to say is that true humility starts with the realization that I am a sinner. Simply recognizing that, that, that I'm in need of God's grace and mercy. Humility doesn't make comparisons. Humbly trusting God doesn't look down on people. It doesn't think that we're better than anyone else. Humble trust doesn't compare or condemn. And the second thing I want us to see then is that the humble trust doesn't rely on good works. The Pharisee, when he's praying, like he, doesn't, he, doesn't, he, doesn't just, he doesn't stop after he's told God how bad all the other people are. He wants to remind God how good he is. And so he keeps on praying. This guy keeps going. And this is what he says. He says, uh, he says I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. And here's the thing. Um, the Jewish law only required Jews to fast once a year. This guy's fasting twice a week. And, and the Jewish law didn't require you to, to, to give a, a tithe from all of your income, just a certain portion of it. But this guy has gone above and beyond, and he's, he's desperate for God to know that. God, God, look what I've done. He's relying on his good works to make him right with God. And, and the sad thing is that if, it, if, if relying on good works is what it takes to be justified, then this tax collector hasn't a hope. He's got absolutely no chance. Because even if he wanted to go and, and pay back all the people that he's ripped off, it would be impossible for him to, to, to know who he had ripped off and how much he had ripped them off. And, and that's what's funny about like when, when Zacchaeus, the tax collector, meets Jesus. He says, I'm going to go and pay all this stuff back. And it would be actually impossible for him to, to know how to do that or to, to, to even maybe even afford to do that. And just like Pete in our story, even if he goes in and, and gets a job and stops cheating the system and, 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 and he stands by his girlfriend and becomes a good dad, there's no way of erasing the bad things that he's done. You just can't escape your past that easily. There's no way for me to make up for it. And this is just like us. We've no way of paying the debt to God that we owe. We've no way of making up for not just the wrong things that we do to other people or we have done to other people, but, but far more, we have no way of how could we ever make up for the sin of rejecting the holy God? How could we ever make up for that? And yet, the sad thing is, we all try to do this, don't we? Maybe you think you don't, but we do. Have you ever thought to yourself, right, that's it, I'm turning it around. 
I'm gonna give the, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give it a really good go this time. I, I, I'm I'm gonna start praying more. I'm gonna start reading my Bible more. I'm gonna come to more gatherings. I'm gonna commit to my missional community. I'm gonna finally set up the direct debit to start giving to the church. By the way, all those things are really good things that Christians do and should do. But the more and more we try to be a good Christian, how often does it seem like we always fail? So. Instead of making us better Christians, our efforts just end up making us feel guilty and frustrated at our own failures. Listen, no amount of trying, working, is going to make us right with God. Isaiah 64, uh, that, that Paul, I think that Paul quotes in Romans 3, he, it says that, that everyone is unworthy and that all our good deeds are about as much use as filthy rags. Absolutely worthless. Filthy rags. That's all we have to offer. The only thing we can, can do is trust not on our good works, but on the good work of Jesus. And here's the thing. Maybe you're thinking, well, listen, I know this. I know that my good works count as nothing. I, I, I never count in good works. I know that I'm saved through faith in Jesus by, by his grace alone. But just be careful about that. Because sometimes we're in danger of, of not being the Pharisee saying, Thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. Sometimes I think in Northern Ireland, for us good Christian people who believe the Bible and love Jesus, we're actually in danger of saying, uh, being like the tax collector, saying, thank you, God, that I'm not like that Pharisee. Well, thank you, God, that I'm not like, I'm not like our Muslim brothers and sisters who, who have to, to try and earn God's favor. Or thank you, God, that I'm not like those Catholics who have to, to work and do good things to add to God's grace. It's so easy for our rejection of good works to become the, the good work that we rely on. Do you know what I mean? Listen, we're not saved because we, we know that salvation is by the grace of Jesus alone. We're saved because we're trusting in Jesus himself. It's not about knowing all the right theology and doctrines. And, we, and I, I, I love it. I, 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 you know, I, this is one of my areas. Like I, I, love, I love studying theology, and I love being able to answer people's questions and be able to help people. But it's not about knowing doctrines and theology. It's just being like the tax collector and just saying, I've got nothing, God. Help me. Believing in the grace of God is not the same as depending on the grace of God. And that's all we have, his grace, his mercy. Jesus paid our debt and we've got nothing to offer. All our works are like filthy rags. Humble trust does not rely on good works. Thirdly then, humble trust doesn't rely on self. Uh, there's, there's one final clue in here about the Pharisee um, that, that shows us just how reliant on himself he was. Jesus tells us that he was standing by himself. Um, and he, he, he probably does this to, to separate himself from the, the unclean, the sinners, like the tax collector that he, you know, that he saw, on the way, saw on the way in or whatever. Um, he wants to get as close to God as possible, right at the center of the temple, as close to the Holy of Holies as he can. Most likely he's gone right into this, this uh, inner court. He has no problem coming close to God. None whatsoever, right? After all, he's better than all the sinners. He has a right to be close to God. He's even gone above and beyond the law. But, but I also think that this standing by himself is a play on words as well. 
I think that Jesus is saying this to make the point that, that he's, standing, he's standing on his own two feet. That he's standing uh, confidently on his own strength. He's standing by himself. He's worthy on his own strength to approach God. He's kind of like a guy who goes to the doctor for a checkup. And um, he walks into the doctor's office and the doctor's like, well, well, how are you doing? And he said, well, doctor, I'm just here from a checkup, but I know everything's fine, right? I don't smoke. I don't drink too much. I get my five a day. I eat my five a day. Um, I run three times a week and I play football at the weekends. And, and, and there's no hereditary diseases in my family, so I know that I'm in tip-top shape. Look at my abs. Look, I'm in the peak condition of my life. That's not what I say when I go to the doctor. Um, and after the checkup, the doctor says, well, listen, I've got some bad news for you, mate. Um, your blood pressure is really high. You've got high cholesterol. And I'm pretty certain that I've found a tumor in your abdomen, so I'm going to have to send you for tests. And the guy says, no, I don't need any tests. Did you not hear what I said? Like, I'm in, I'm in the shape of my life. I'm totally fine. I'll see you next year for my checkup. That's how foolish we are if we think that we can, can be right before God by relying on ourselves. If we think for one minute that we don't need humility before God, we're just fooling ourselves. And, and, and this is sometimes what we do as Christians, isn't it? We forget the humility before God. Because we know that we're accepted by God. And man, we are accepted by God. If we're trusting Jesus, we are accepted by God. We know we're saved by Jesus. We know we're part of his family. We know that we're in his church. And so we think that we don't owe God any humility anymore. And we easily forget the need for humility in our approach to God. Amen. I'm all good. Last week, we saw how Jesus encouraged this widow to, to just persistently come to God. And yes, we are like that widow. We boldly approach. That's what Hebrews tells us. We boldly approach God's throne. But we need to remember that it's not on our own merit that we boldly approach. Man, do we keep boldly approaching. But, but we do it humbly. Because it's only because of what Jesus has done that we can't even approach the throne. The only reason we can come close to God in the first place because of what Jesus has done. And so we need to come with humility. He's, he, we may be intimate with him, but he is still the God of creation, the eternal God, majestic, wonderful, uh, completely other, completely above us in every way. Uh, me and Haley have started watching The Crown. It's, I, I quite like it. Um, it's really interesting. It's pretty good. Um, but we watched the episode with the coronation of the queen, and, and there's this bit where you have this... She's like, you have to, she says to her husband, you have to kneel to me. And he's like, I, you know, he's conflicted. And here's the thing, he is still her husband. He kneels to her, but he is still her husband. They still live together. They still laugh together. They still have jokes together. They still raise their kids together. They still share a bed together. But yet, he still has to recognize her sovereignty. That's what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that humility isn't just how we enter the kingdom. It's the posture we have in the kingdom. Humility should, should, before God, should be one of the characteristics of us as Christians. Humbling ourselves and realizing our need for God isn't just how we, we get saved. It's the attitude when we are saved. We continue that. And I, so, I think we so often forget this. This attitude and posture that we have before God, who, yes, he is our father, and yes, he loves us dearly, and he wants to be close to us, and he, he loves being intimate with us. But we still have to have this attitude of the tax collector. He couldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven. That would have been the normal way to pray back then. You lift your eyes up. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up. Where does my help come from? 
They've lifted their eyes up and pray in prayer, and he can't even do that. He can't even bring himself close to the inner sanctuary of the temple. He's so distressed over his sin that he's beaten his chest. And this is how we need to approach God, all of us. We all bow before the eternal majesty of God's glory. We need to confess our sin and our unworthiness. We need to confess that we're all just trusting on, on Jesus, right? That's all we have. Um, this week, uh, a man called J.I. Packer died, and maybe you know who that is, maybe you don't, but he was a, a theologian and a pastor, and uh, just he wrote this book called Knowing God, and if you've never read it, really read it. It's amazing, and it's, it's only this big, so uh, it's accessible for everyone. But he, he, was speak, he was writing about getting older, and humility. And this is what he said. He said, real spiritual growth is always growth downward into profounder humility, which in healthy souls will become more and more apparent as the age. So what's he saying? He's saying that, that as we mature in our faith, we grow not more in our sense of I'm okay, I'm in. We grow more in humility and our need of Jesus. The more we repent, the more we realize we have need of repent, that we need to repent. Spiritual growth is always growth downward into profounder humility. Humility before God and before people is what characterizes people who know Jesus. Because when we know Jesus, right, we know that, that we have contributed nothing to our salvation. We just say, like the tax collector, God, I know I'm unworthy. Just trusting on the worthiness of Jesus. The humble trust doesn't rely on self. So we've looked at what humble trust isn't. But I want to finish up by looking at what humble trust is. Um, and this is my final, our final lesson. Humble trust simply relies on God's mercy. Humble trust simply relies on God's mercy. Listen to what, the tax, what Jesus says about this tax collector. I just want to remind us again. Says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes, lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice his posture. He recognizes his unworthiness. He's standing far off, not worried to come close to God or other people. He knows he's unclean, so he has to stand far away. And then he repents of his sin. The normal way to pray, like I said, would be to look up, but he can't even do that. He's humbled himself. He's beaten his chest. That would have been a really shameful thing to do, by the way. Men didn't normally do that. That was usually something that women would have done in times of great distress and sorrow. And this is what he does. He, 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 he recognizes the seriousness and the extent of his sin, his unworthiness. He's, he's completely undone. He would be like Pete, the tears tripping him. It's knowing that he's, he's completely broken and he has nothing. God, I've got nothing here. He knows that, that he needs something outside of himself if he's ever going to be uh, close to God. That's his posture. But then notice his prayer. <laughs> Maybe the prayer of the Bible. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer. That, I mean, that's a prayer. If that's the only thing we ever prayed, man, how much different would our lives be? Both his posture and his prayer are saying, I know how unworthy I am. I know how holy you are, God. I know that my sin is awful. I know that there's nothing I can do to ever make up for it. And God, all I can do is throw myself in your mercy. Help me, God. 
like Pete in the back of the church service, with head in his hands, crying out, help me, God. God, help me. Actually, what he says in the original language, what, what Luke says, Jesus says, he says, <laughs> um, it, it, it's this word, he uses this word, propitiate. God, will you propitiate me? Be my propitiation. Now, that's another word, the, the theological word, but I need to put it in here because it's important. Uh, the Bible uses this word to show not only that, that sin is forgiven, but actually that, 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 that the wrath of God for that sin has been diverted to something or someone else. So in the sacrifices in the Old Testament, or even in the temple where this story is taking place, uh, the animal, an animal would be offered, and, and it would be killed. And, and because it took on that punishment, you would be forgiven. And that's what he's doing. He's saying, God, God I, I'm trusting on the way that you've made for my sin to be forgiven. That's actually what he's saying. Lord, Lord I know you've made a way for sin to be forgiven, and I'm just trusting on that because I've got nothing. And the temple, going to the temple, it wasn't like coming to a church gathering. It wasn't like going into a church building. It was a busy, noisy, smelly, visually striking place. So, so maybe he can see the blood stains on the altar. Maybe smell that, you know, that smell of that, that metallic smell of blood in the air. He can certainly smell burning flesh and the incense. And so he sees uh, the cost of the forgiveness of sins. And he's just at the end of himself. He's, he's got nothing to offer. And so from the depths of himself, he says, God, I know my sin. I can see the cost of sacrifice for what it takes for my sin to be removed. And, and, and God, all I'm doing is just relying on the way you've provided for my sin to be forgiven. Have mercy on me, a sinner. So let me finish by asking us this question. Think about this. Have you ever prayed like that tax collector? Have you ever said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and truly meant it. Like, have you ever said, God, I have nothing here. Please help me. Or are you like the Pharisee, just trusting your own Christian family, maybe? You grew up going to church. You were part of the youth group. You know, you knew all the delirious songs. That was my day, you knew all the delirious songs. Or maybe you're trusting, well, I am. You know, I'm part of a good Bible-teaching church like Village. I, I, I give to the poor. Because I think in a place where, like where we live in Northern Ireland, it's so easy for us to be Christian and live Christians' lives, but, but never realize our need for God's mercy. And I know this sounds old-fashioned. Yeah, of course it does. Because it's 2,000 years old. Uh, all this talk of sin and wrath and mercy. But this is what Jesus is leading us to consider this morning. I think maybe some of us, we're just trying to figure out how to live a Christian life. How, how can I be a good Christian? I mean, you're just, uh, just trying to work out what it means for me to be a good Christian. And you just get frustrated because you just can't do it or figure it out. No matter how hard I, tr how hard I try, I always seem to fail. I just can't keep it up. Listen, Jesus is telling us this morning, he's saying, he's just saying stop. Stop trying to make yourself right. Just stop thinking that being a good Christian is somehow going to make you right with God. Nothing you can do because Jesus has done it all. You just have to rely on that. Like, like, like the tax collector who's relying on the, God's provision of the sacrifice in the temple, we just rely on the sacrifice of Jesus. That's all we have. And listen, if I was saying to you this morning that 
There's nothing you can do to be right with God. That would be the worst news ever, wouldn't it? But, but that's not the full story. And here's the best news ever. There's nothing you can do to be right with God, but God has done it all for you. There's nothing you can do to be right with God, but God has done it all for you. So let's not try to stand on our own. Let's not think that we're better than anyone else. Let's not try to work our way into God's good books. Let's just humbly trust Him. Let's, let's just keep reminding each other all the time that we're all just trusting on the mercy of God. That's all we have. That's all. Because God is merciful. He, he does respond to humility and trust. He does forgive sinners. And, and I'm so, so thankful that He does. Let's pray.